Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Cody Barbo, founder and CEO of Trust and Will, disrupting the trust and estate planning industry with an easy, fast, and secure way to set up your estate plan online. You've raised $33 million in capital. You went through Techstars. You have relationships with all the big guys, UBS, Northwestern Mutual, Fifth Third, AARP, Acorns, and a bunch more. Completed the very first ever electronic will in history. Have helped over 300,000 Americans kickstart their estate plan. Longtime entrepreneur, led multiple companies. I've even had the pleasure to get to mentor you a little bit, which is even more of a cherry on top, or maybe that's just in my mind. Excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Cody. Alex, great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Love love the journey. Love the story that you have so far to date. And I, where I would love to start this entire conversation is around where you guys found product market fit. Because the trust in the will industry hasn't obviously been changed in a zillion years. And you guys are coming in and really kind of changing some things around, around making it more modern making it more online transparent as well as, as well as more cost effective. How did you, can you talk a little bit about just overall, like how you found product market fit and, and how you knew you actually had, had, had the traction that you had to be able to begin scaling? Yeah. Yeah. We can dive, dive right in. Product market fit, it's, it's really hard to define, right? And there's so many different ways to kind of feel like you have product market fit and to know you have product market fit. I think for us, I'm, I'm going to use a fairly recent timeline, which feels like at the tail end of 2021. And the reason for that is that we in our business had an amplification of perceived product market fit because of the pandemic. So we started our company in late 2017. We were still early stage, you could say, going into the pandemic in early 2020 and had almost like rocket fuel poured onto our business because people couldn't meet with state planning attorneys. So they turned to online solutions and we usually showed up on the first page even back then and had a ton of people coming to the site. And the most important thing is product doesn't break. It can support scale and we didn't sacrifice our customer support, meaning five-star reviews or close to five-star reviews. We're still coming through on Trustpilot and we had high NPS scores. And that for us, we had perceived product market fit because pandemic people sadly were dying or people were getting sick and we had record numbers of signups. And we caught up and exceeded that in the fall of 2020, but that's still not enough of a timeline. And the reason why I said 2021 is that 2021 has really started to understand our unit economics. We were grounded and disciplined in our top of funnel activities that drove people to the site, understanding if it was organic, paid, partner referrals that were driving traffic. But where we at the at kind of the tail end of 21 really knew we had product market fitters, like we never changed our pricing. I know pricing makes founders incredibly uncomfortable. You've baked so much of it on opinion. And we did a data-led pricing analysis. We had a third-party consultant that just did a ton of deep dives with us. They did more research than we could have ever done on our own. And that's their pricing experts. They're the best at what they do. And what we learned from that was somewhat validating and kind of our assumptions, but having that data to leverage in understanding it is appropriate to make a price increase because it's gonna give us positive unit economics. And if we can support continued growth with positive unit economics, meaning that initial purchase of our estate plans is profitable, 
that feels like we have a pretty good gauge on product market fit. We weren't sacrificing the number of signups. We weren't sacrificing the quality of the experience. And again, positive unit economics. So that's why I said it was fairly recent. So the tail end of 21 did the price increase on our products and have continued to grow the business. We've more than doubled the business since then from that initial price increase and, and feel like we're in a place where we have product market fit confidently today in our planning business. It's interesting because a lot of founders actually would um, probably think that they had it a little bit earlier than they actually do. I mean, you guys have a bunch of different channels that are driving people to the website. You're looking at conversions. Did you did you figure it out via specific unit unit economics in addition to hey I know that this channel is driving in customers that are converting? How how did you kind of figure out I guess the step right before from a from a signal perspective to go everything's based on lead gen right and and if you're getting that lead gen and it's converting then you can look at the rest of it to say hey I think we're onto something. How, how did you figure out that top of funnel piece? Yeah, it's, it, the, that's why I went with a more recent timeline versus two or three years ago. Two or three years ago, we had little to no partnerships driving traffic. We had a much smaller marketing budget. So we had some paid marketing activities, but organic was non-existent. And when you have all funnels or all possible acquisition channels pouring into that top of funnel, it gave us a really clear lens to look at the health of our planning business through. So if it was two or three years ago, it felt like we had product market fit. We had no organic. We had like two partnerships and we didn't have a TV commercial and we had very little brand notoriety like we do today. So that's where starting about a year and a half back, even though we started investing in organic, you know, two plus years ago, even two and a half years ago, we had for our marketing, we had our always on channels, our testing and learning channels, our long-term investments. We had a variety of categories of partnerships. We had bank partners, life insurance partners, credit union partners, nonprofit partners. We've had a TV commercial that we've been promoting national channels that maybe some of the listeners have seen it on CNN or Fox News, ESPN, CNBC, on college playoffs. We had college game day commercial spotters, our highest revenue day of the year so far. And it was cool. It's cool to have a commercial. But what's more cool is that we have a ton of organic traffic. Like over half of our site traffic will have 600,000 visitors to the site this month. We're recording this end of January 2023. We have 600,000 people come to the site this month, 60% organic, and ranking for so many key search terms, having most of those people land on articles, learning articles. So we have that like everything is on, a diverse set of acquisition channels all firing off. It gives us clarity on that product market fit versus if this was two years ago, two and a half years ago, we would have just perceived product market fit because we had good customer reviews, a polished product, but not everything that we have today. No, that's really interesting. When when you talk about organic search traffic, I mean, I, I know that you guys do the commercial, you do you paid ads, you do a bunch of different things. Was that always the sole focus or the, or the main focus was to drive towards this organic side of things as far as being able to get your unit economics in order obviously in the very early days you don't there's nothing there so you have to kind of figure out how to pump it yeah. to be able to get to to organic like walk, walk us through a little bit about like how did you even get there is that a strategy that you entailed or did it kind of happen based on some other things that you were doing 
Yeah, and in the early days, you got, I always think of it like pre and post pandemic. I don't know why now it's like for our business specifically, but you know, pre pandemic, it was really hard to get people to care about this. The biggest driver, education, I should say is the biggest barrier, but education can equally be the biggest driver to just, people don't know what an estate plan is. What is an estate plan? What's the difference between a trust or a will? So content strategy for us has really been education for the everyday family, which is, you know, estate planning 101. You go to our Learn Center today, we've got a ton of great educational content, but there's also really complex estate planning. Think of all the billionaires in this world, specifically those here in the U.S. You can get incredibly creative with estate planning, not illegal. There's lots of loopholes and strategies, but incredibly creative with estate planning. And we wanted to help tap into that. I think it's in fascinating content. How do the billionaires of the country, how do the Elon Musks of the U.S. do estate planning, right? We have a couple billionaires on our cap table. I've told them, don't use our product. Please stick with your attorney. You're a very expensive attorney. But even <laughs> pop culture trends. I mean, you'd be blown away. Celebrities, people with wealth, like Aretha Franklin, Prince. What's the, the Priscilla Presley who just passed? She now her will is in contest in contest right now with her family. Like it's like there's things about estate planning that like the estate plan either doesn't exist or it's out of date. That family members want to challenge it. So that kind of pop culture trend, we try to provide educational content around. Even the Britney Spears conservatorship, we became a proactive voice in the Britney Spears conservatorship of the last year and a half. Our attorney, Patrick Hicks on in-house, had like a ton of quotes and some of the leading publications around this situation that was going on because it ties back to an estate plan. Yeah. No, that's so. that's interesting because it, it, it's easily, it could easily deter people from from moving forward because of this education barrier. I mean, when you think of a trust and will, it's just like, oh my God, that's that's for those rich people. That's for those yeah, yeah. billionaires. And you're, and you're essentially making it saying, hey, this is this is for everyone and anyone. They're, like, you should have something like this to be able to, not only from an estate perspective while you're living, a will mm -hmm. perspective what, you know, after you pass. I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot there. How long, did, or I should say, did you know when you were first getting into this that there was going to be this kind of like slow early tail to, to before you could really make the thing pop because of this education piece? Oh yeah, totally. So in the early days, so we incorporated end of 2017, got into Techstars in 2018, and we raised a $2 million seed round. So we're still a very small company going into 2019. So 2019, at the start, we had no in-house marketing. We had a small digital marketing agency. We had a small influencer marketing agency and we had an affiliate agency. So the digital marketing agency was just testing copy and creative on mostly Facebook and Instagram. What, what sticks, what works, what's getting us traffic? How do we just really define the audience that we ultimately want to serve? Cause we made it like a generality, like people with kids. Okay. Well, 75 million people with kids. How do you specify who's the right person? At what point in having kids? Is it when they're done having kids? Is it when they start having kids? The influencer marketing agency was interesting. It's not the super sexy influencer marketing that's promoting like, you know, beauty products. I'm talking like moms and dads stay at home looking for supplemental income for promoting products that are helpful for moms and dads. So these are usually people with less than 10,000 followers that are trying anything to make a little extra cash, but provide products that they do find useful in their lives. So the beauty in the influencer marketing agency is that we were not only getting customers, so they got a free will, they got paid, I think like 20 bucks a will. And, and all we asked in return was take a picture of the estate plan with you and your family. And we have rights to repurpose that content. So that content got us like 2000 families, super diverse and real customers. They used our product. 
So we had this content library that we then patched, we paired up with the digital marketing agencies. They had the copy that they were testing with real families, so it wasn't stock photos. I hate stock photos, but they're cheap, they work. And then the affiliate agency was, you know, anybody who's writing about estate planning, typically personal finance writers, bloggers, podcasters, they could get a little kickback. They could educate their listeners or readers on estate planning and get a little kickback with the trackable link. So that's what we did for like almost two years until we hired Katie, our head of marketing in December of 2019. And if you look at our revenue and our unit economics from when she joined through today, it's like 20X since then. And she's built a wonderful team, but we didn't know any better. We weren't marketing <laughs> experts, but we're like, we trusted the network of people we got introduced to, to be good enough for digital marketing or for influencer marketing or affiliate marketing. And it helped us build an understanding of who we we're selling to and why before we needed to get into organic ranking and all this investment in Learn Center. We just didn't know what to build yet. So that was kind of the inflection point. Yeah, no, that's interesting because essentially you're not, you're, your customers are giving you your own content and then they're giving yeah. you social proof and they're giving you credibility and they're obviously giving you like testimonials and reviews. But, but you're able to, with this strategy, not only are you able to get more customers, but you're ultimately able to create all the marketing that will eventually supply you to be able to hit to that next level. On top of it, you know, you're looking at it from having other people talk about your product. I think a lot of times when, when I talk to founders, they're like, oh, I'm just gonna run ads, right? I'm gonna run Facebook or Instagram ads. And when they think about it, that's a very expensive way and unsustainable to just do it day after day after day after day. Your your, your budget's gonna have to be out of, the, out, of, out of control. Where now you're looking at it from, hey, we need to do that a little bit from, hey, we need to pop some traffic. But that's not really long tail going to be the thing. And we know that we need to kind of supplement that until it, you know, it, we don't have all the money in the world to be able to do it. Right. Yeah. And those, you know, venture capital buys you time. It doesn't guarantee your success. So, you know, we've raised, we've raised a bit of capital, as you mentioned, but it's really hitting specific goals and milestones, revenue milestones, unit economic milestones. I'm trying to think back to like exactly when, but we, you know, when we had positive unit, well, like late 21, positive unit economics on that initial purchase, we were like, all right, we have some breathing room. We have some boundary constraints. We can stretch or contract where our paid marketing spend is. And the one thing that was wise for any, any of the listeners that are entrepreneurs thinking about scaling the business, there's things you can start doing day one that might not actually materialize till year four or five, like in our case. And that was for us partnerships to get the attention of the Bank of Americas. And I'm used to, we mostly work with banks and large financial companies, but like B of A, JPM, Wells Fargo, like to get their attention when you're a brand new startup, they literally won't give you the time of day. To get their attention when you're, you know, year five startup and you raise some venture capital, they might be on your cap table, they'll give you a little bit more time of their day, but it doesn't guarantee they'll partner with you yet. We're still so small in the scale of how big a top five bank is. But the thing that we did really well is we always found that personal route to helping the person behind the title at those companies understand why we do what we do. And going back to the education piece, I call this friend raising, you know, your friend raising before your fundraising, both in raising capital, but also in partnerships, is that we found people that wanted us to win because they either didn't have an estate plan themselves or they knew the importance of it. Even if Wells Fargo wasn't willing to work with us yet, or JPM or B of A, the people that we were talking to knew the importance of this. And every time we talk to them, when there's a new person on the call, I add them on LinkedIn. If they're on Twitter, I follow them on Twitter. 
And my job as a founder, we're the ultimate hype man or hype woman, is to continue to share the good news about our companies every week, every month, every year. They start to see those accomplishments pile up. And now five years in, we're starting to feel the benefit of that. We have our, this last month, we have our pilot with Bank of America went live. So if you're a BVA customer, you open up the rewards app, you'll see us as one of like 10 partners in there. And it's a huge revenue driver and we're helping families. And that's again, four years of knocking on their door, probably hundreds of hours of calls that at time you feel like you're wasting your time. You want to give up. You're like, this is never, never leading to anywhere. And then it does. And that moment is fully worth the time invested. That's really interesting. It's just, I mean, obviously there's the feel good story side of things and it's an interesting point to say, go find the people who can cheer for you. The big guys, they might not actually work with you right away. They might not make any kind of official partnership with you, but they can certainly help you get there. Like it needs to be kind of worth their while at a certain point. If you're super, super early, find the people who actually want to cheer for you because they're going to, whether it is give you some money, it could be making introductions to other parties, it could be advisory. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, you have all these different types of ways of working with these people who want you to, to win. That's going to be a huge catalyst to be able to open doors in the future. Yeah, it's a lot of it. But again, it's a lot of it. It's, it's creating your own luck. Like I, I'm, I'm really big on the power of the network because I am public school educated. I went to a state school for college and I'm no, no disrespect at all. I'm only, only mad respect, I should say, for anybody who is Ivy League and has the prestigious network. But I've had to fight for it. I've had to really, really fight for it and work for it. And coming into Trust and Will, you know, the Bank of America relationship that went live this last month, how did that start? I talked to one financial advisor at B of A, Merrill, Merrill Lynch, who we hit it off because it was just it was a cool conversation, had fun. And he's like, hey, well, I'll try and make an intro to someone at, at B of A on the tech side. He introduced us to the CTO and, and I was like, hey, we don't need to chat. You can push me down ranks to someone on your team. But it was really cool. This is like four years ago, he made this intro. And we talked to dozens of stakeholders throughout that time. But our one main stakeholder, I don't want to share his name. I don't know if I'll get in trouble, but our one main stakeholder in those four years, he got married, he had a kid. He ended up becoming a customer of our product. And not that that's the sole reason that drove them to work with us. There's a ton of reasons they did. And we hope to expand that relationship further. But like it, you know, hearing it every month, hey, 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 you need the importance of an estate plan. And then you have a kid and you're like, oh, I need, I need an estate plan. That's something that doesn't scale. That's just, it's the passion of the founder and your relentless ability to not give up. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with, based on what you're doing, especially from a messaging standpoint, is you can talk about just the cost of trust and wills, kind of the old school way versus the new school way, or you can get to more of the story and the why and the bigger, larger picture. This is just kind of a tool in the entire story of a person's life. And when you look at your messaging, when you look at your guys' website and your marketing materials, it's not just, hey, it could cost you all of these millions of dollars or thousands of dollars to do it with you know, a, a person the old school way, or you can do it with us and it's much cheaper. You guys don't focus on that. As a whole, you're really focusing on this larger messaging to get people to kind of buy into this like overall why, the, the emotional levers of it. A hundred percent. It's not, it's kind of wild. It's again, it's not a wall for an age-based trigger. It's procrastination. Like I, I always remind people, our biggest competitor is procrastination. You're not required to set up an estate plan. Like you're required to file your taxes every year. And it's usually, 
the emotional hook, like our core demo today is 30 to 55, married with minor children. That's our kind of main cohort. Our second main cohort, 65 plus. You know why? 40% of 65 plus does not have an estate plan. That's why AARP is an investor in our company. It's why we're partnered with them. We offer a discounted member benefit to their 38 million members. And it's like, it feels good. You can hit people on the positive trajectories, marriage, kids, buying a home, and also the negatives, death, dying, divorce, diagnosis. And the product experience is the same. The customer experience can feel very different for people going through different situations in life. So we like to focus on the, the convenience, education first, not the cost benefits substantial, but it's really just getting people to get this done versus putting it off until the inevitable. It makes a lot of sense. So when you, when you look at kind of all of a sudden you're starting to connect the dots on a bunch of these pieces, right? Top of funnel starting to work. You're starting to dial in your actual conversion. Once they hit the site, you're mm -hmm. having, you're having some really good people who are cheering for you kind of help kind of pull this through. What, what were the signals or what, what were you looking at saying, Hey, I got to pour some fuel on the fire. Like this thing, we, like we, we got to go. Like what, what were those signals that are those triggers that we were like, Oh man, I think, I think we just, I think we're hitting something good timing. Yeah. We looked at our, you know, positive contribution margin or our payback on marketing spend. Cause we still have a lot of paid spend in our business. So we have positive contribution margin. That's good. Good for us. At least that's our strike zone. So as long as we're staying in the strike zone, we can, we can push and throttle our paid marketing spend. Obviously TV can be a money pit for every company, including our own, but TV has been just driving incredible ROI for us, driving awareness first and foremost. I get a text every single day, somebody who saw our commercial, I was like, I got three, which is good. I'm like, I'm like, hey, did you sign up though? That's my always follow-up question. Hey, thanks so much. Hey, did you sign up? But even beyond that, you know, we are looking at, at larger brands, like Intuit's the best example. You cannot watch football playoffs without seeing Intuit TurboTax. Like that, there's a reason why they dominate the tax space, like dominate leaps and bounds above H&R Block. They're in your face everywhere when it comes to tax filing seasoning. And, and obviously they're massive public company. They can spend infinite amount of dollars on TV. But for us, it is just brand awareness, brand awareness. So like when people are seeing an ad for estate planning and they see Trust Mall, they don't even have a reference point for another brand. Like I think you only do this with attorneys or Trust Mall. They're not thinking LegalZoom, who's an option, or Rocket Lawyer, who's an option, or some of our smaller startup competitors who are still great options. I don't want to downplay them at all because any family that gets an estate plan done, whether you do it offline or online, is better than none or no estate plan. But Building that brand um, is everything to us from day one, back when we first met in Techstars through today and, and through the future. One of our deep convictions is the only way this works is if there's a brand in the space that consumers can recognize the way that TurboTax is the most referenceable in the tax space. H&R Block's pretty recognizable, but again, TurboTax leaps and bounds ahead. So TV is the most interesting to us. And we have a new product through a company that we acquired last year in the probate space, so post-death that we see opportunities to educate through TV and continued educational content. That's really interesting because it's it's such a massive brand play. When, when you think about it, it's just if you're always top of mind, it really is in, in this situation, an individual person is, is a procrastinator, right? And they're mm -hmm. the ones that are Almost. stopping from, oh my God, I gotta go talk to the lawyer or do this or do that and you're just constantly staying top of mind that that's interesting how did you how did you know when it was time for you to kind of get out of the way and bring in the people uh, as far as leading the different departments of the company from like a sales and a marketing point of view wh when did you go you know what now is the time to, to to pull the triggers 
Yeah, I and mean, I think it's, as a founder, one of the best things you can do, it sounds weird to say this, is fire yourself from roles and responsibilities, is delegation. And I think what happens in the early days is every, you're wearing every hat, right? I'm customer support, I'm QA, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You're, you're in the business every day. It's very rare to think on or work on the business in the early days because everybody's working in the business. As our organizations evolved, now we're 80 plus people, and we have departments for everything, but not everybody for everything, but mostly ever someone for something, right, at the company, is that I personally, in my role, get to think about on working on the business long-term. Like I'm thinking six to 18 months out, not in the next six weeks to six months, as most of the team is. So I'm trying to look ahead of the corner, ahead of the curve, gather inputs from growth stage companies that are one to three years ahead of us, inputs from our board who have portfolio companies one to three years ahead of us. Just make sure that we're not missing the mark. So like a prime example, going back to when we made our first marketing hire, we were spending, I don't know, call it like five to 10 grand a month in digital marketing agency spend with digital marketing affiliates and influencer. And I was like, this is a lot of money that we're spending and none of us are experts here. And if we want to increase our spend, because we're starting to see incremental improvements, like at what point are we spending enough or making enough that we should be able to hire somebody full time? So Katie was like one of my favorite wins because you know the LinkedIn, the who's viewed your profile feature, if you ever creep, it's kind of weird, but you creep on who's looking at you and then you maybe creep at other people's profiles. So Katie had been on the, the marketing, digital marketing agency side for like 10 years and I saw her look at my profile and I'm like, wow, she has like the perfect experience for like a trust demo for where we're at. So I connected with her July of 2019. August, we hit a million run rate. And we hit a million run rate without a full-time marketing person. Like, you need to hire a full-time marketing person. Like, we had no marketing expertise, just like a lot of opinions as founders typically do. So connected with Katie, kind of put her through the funnel. And, you know, we were depleting our seed rounds. So cash or whatever their incentive is, is it cash? So base comp or is it equity? Does equity matter more to them if they have the financial cushion to take a, you know, leap of faith for six to six months to, you know, a couple years? So Katie came in at perfect timing because we we're out fundraising for our Series A and we closed our Series A like the day the wire hit was her first day at the company. And she came in, we're a small team, we're eight people, so she was our ninth hire. And from Katie joining the team, she added a few folks to her marketing team because she's like, this is way too much for me. We have money, the company has money. So I'm gonna make a couple hires here on marketing to help with our paid spend, start building our content strategy. This when Amanda and Molly join. And then we had a few others that joined and now her team is 10 plus and commands, you know, a, a 10 figure position of our business revenue and or not 10 figures. That'd be way too much. Eight figures, <laughs> eight figures. I was going to say 10, more than 10 million. Um, yeah, no, 10 figures would be like, we're, we're, we're going public. So anyways, yeah. Yeah, like I'm investing in this right now. <laughs> yeah. I invest. Yeah. No, Katie, Katie's been instrumental and everyone that's joined her team, she sets the bar as a leader at the company, super honored to have her. And I could say the same example for other leaders in engineering and product, customer success, but in marketing particularly, because we were a heavy paid marketing spend company, that was a key hire we made. I'm really happy we did it right before we hit that million run rate. Right. So I would imagine that that is a, that's a very, very big hurdle and a very big transition moment from... I mean, you guys are scrappy, you guys are gritty, you guys are getting to your million dollar runway run rate, and you're like, you know what? We don't have anyone who actually specializes in any of this. And you, <laughs> obviously, you know, there, there, was some, there was some pull, you guys made some good bets, and, and we can talk about those. But you get to this point where you're like, okay, it's time to transition out of leading marketing, essentially, and mm -hmm. saying, hey, let's bring in someone to lead this. What, what did that, 
what did what what was that process looking like? I mean, I, I we'll have to dig more into the uh, the LinkedIn creeper because that's a that's a great strategy. <laughs> I don't know if it's it's the, yeah. the scalable thing in the world, but yeah, that 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 absolutely does work, and that's why I'm always a big proponent of of posting on LinkedIn. But when you look at like, how did you go through that? Do you have a, a specific process that you guys thought of? Like, how did you identify who the attributes and the roles and responsibilities to figure out that this was the right person? Yeah, I mean, I think that Katie, her specific background is on SEO. Like that that search expertise was essential. We're like, people need to be able to find us. Like if, if people are searching online will, what is a will, what is a trap? We have to be the first result. Like that was just, we knew that from the start of the company. It took us a year and a half in to actually act on it. And we had been just trying anything that works. I think that's the hard part about the early, the early days of a startup. Just anything that works, keep doing it. And testing and learning and iterating on those learnings every single day, every single week. And I think it was, it was a function of like the revenue milestone that we're getting close to hitting that million dollar run rate. On top of the spend we were committing to these digital marketing agencies, this channel, and with the anticipation of raising a Series A, we had a huge windfall of cash in that, that Series A. We need somebody to manage it. If they're going to manage a multi-million dollar marketing budget, it cannot be the founders. Like, we have to delegate that. And that was the same, you know, I think back to when we hired Meg, our head of customer, what we call member success, head of member success back in 2018, is that we hired Meg as we we're five people, five guys on the team. She's six hire. And we're in a co-working space in a single office. We, the one thing we did well, even when we didn't have a lot of customers, we took really good care of them. We had intercom, full volume blast, the whole team. If that beep went off on intercom, we were responding immediately. And that was kind of our benchmark, is 30 second response time or less during normal business hours. And even at nighttime, we're probably not to the favorability of our, our spouses and partners, but like we're, you know, anytime that support chat went off, we felt compelled to respond immediately. Even if we couldn't solve their problem or pain point, we responded and that was a real human responding. So Meg came in, took that as, again, a woman of one, team of one, and has grown into a team of almost a dozen people. And we've maintained best-in-class customer reviews since then under her leadership. And I think that's where you, you start to feel these things that you're doing well enough that that's actually when it's sometimes the best time to hand off. When you're doing it really well is when you want to hand it off. Where things are really hard and tough, you need to take that on yourself, learn from it, and then decide when it's time to bring someone in. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, it, when you think about going back to the very beginning of the conversation when you're saying, hey, we want to have organic traffic as one of our main drivers, obviously from a sustainability standpoint, unit economics, cost, that type of thing. But you look at it and say, hey, the person who is going to lead the helm of marketing has to be from a core foundation, understand that piece. Because everything can be yeah. built around it and you can obviously hire, but if the if the core foundation to make the business work is organic seo makes a lot of sense and then obviously you fill in the various attributes in the in the core values of the company so that makes a lot of sense but like this is this is the thing that that kind of launched us is there anything that you can kind of point to that you're like hey if we did it again we've got to make sure we do this one or two things or was it like just a bunch of little things that added up to a big one yeah, it's my, one of my favorite startup quotes, at least most applicable to early stage founders is Paul Graham's quote, do things that don't scale. And for Trust and Will, when we started in Techstars, Alex, when we first met, we first met in January, 2018. Our product wasn't even live yet. Midway through program, like going into March, we launched our beta, March, April, launched beta that year. And 
Daniel, Brian, and I, the three of us, between Brian and I who went to school at San Diego State, Brian being a little bit older than myself, and Daniel who went to school at Baylor, all, not all, half of our friends were getting married, having kids, buying their first home. And when I say do things that don't scale, we forget sometimes how just our friend network can actually be such great validation for something as for entrepreneurs. If you're building something, you're gonna sell a product, who's the ideal customer? Our hunch was that it was young parents. And like we pitched friends that didn't have kids, they didn't really care, like, yeah, I'll, I'll die one day, not, not today, I'll sign up later. Our friends with kids are like, no, I actually have thought about this before getting on a flight without my kids or going on that business trip. It's usually a trip enabled when you're leaving your kids behind with like grandma, grandpa. And we had a lot of friends in the beta, they'd reach out, hey, we're going on a trip to Italy, leaving you know, so-and-so with grandma, grandpa, like we need to get this done. So you'd see sometimes people pop onto the site like 10, 11 o'clock at night doing that. And that's the thing is you forget your, this is why I talk about the power of the network, you forget your connections, past colleagues, people you went to college with. If they fit into that target profile for customer, talk to them. I, I am very extroverted, so is Daniel. Brian's, Brian's a little more introverted. But when you have extroverted founders, or if you are extroverted, go talk to people. Talk to as many people as you can. And even if you're introverted, do it digitally. Reach out to them, DM them, and on Twitter, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, whatever it is. And, and that's the thing is like, one, you're, you're genuinely trying to learn. It's like QA before you need to build anything and spend any money. Like, does this even matter? Do people care about this? If I build it, will people come and sign up? And that was wonderful. We had like 400 people, mostly direct friends and family, sign up for the beta. Worked through a lot of bugs with them, a lot of patience, but that that worked. Uh, a lot of I don't know why a lot of entrepreneurs are scared to talk to people. It's like the whole point of starting a company. Talk to everybody. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like people are are saving their networks, right? Or this this quote unquote set of LinkedIn connections. From mm-hmm. people all the way back from high school and college and through the through the various you know gigs that they've had, and they're like, "Well, I haven't talked to that person in a while." And I'm like, "You know what? They're they're probably thinking the same thing." And if you just reach out and say, "Hey, I'm working on this cool idea. I'm building this business. Would love your feedback on it." And you can explain why you think it's a good fit for them to say, "Well, they were 23 at the time, and now they're 43, and they have a couple of kids." Like I imagine something like this. Would you give me some feedback? Though those kind of like loose connections where there was maybe a stronger connection in the past those are great people because they usually say yes Mm -hmm. i'm open to helping you it's not super cold and it's not somebody who sees you every single day that will of course say whatever it is that you want them to say these are the people that you can get really really truthful advice excellent excellent tip i think that that's a a great one especially digging into all your all your potential Uh, no reason to save it right (laughs) Yeah, do you care if I share a quick framework that might be helpful yeah. for listeners? So I, this, I don't, someone's probably written like a thesis on this, so this is like my informal version, and if I'm plagiarizing, I apologize, because I, I do believe, I think I come up with a structure, but it's simple. I call it a, a, B, C, D, and E. Your A's is your all-stars, think of it as your personal board of directors, the people you're absolutely closest with, people you live with, spouses, partners, usually close family and friends. You know everything about them and they know everything about you and that's usually the group that's first to call you out on your bullshit <laughs> so sorry for cursing if that's not part of the podcast ethos but they'll call you out on your bs yeah, your b's are your business right. context like 150 250 people you generally know pretty intimate details about their life we call these b's or your besties you know people that like even if you hadn't seen them in 10 years like you pick up a conversation like that and you're always gonna stay connected with them. Like you just care about them. You care about their life milestones, career milestones. If something bad happened to them, you're first to reach out. And people can rotate in and out of the B's and definitely the A's. 
But the, the next group is the most important. It's your C's. Anybody you're connected with, you've gone to college with, a past colleague, or you're digitally connected with, because the C's can always get you an A or B. That's that B of A advisor. We just kind of hit it off. And he's like, hey, how can I help? And I'm like, I don't know, talk to some product or tech people. It intros to the CTO of B of A. And then your D's are your deletes, delinquents. They're dragging you behind. So just disassociate with them. And then an E is everyone because they can be in A through D. And it's not like I have people saved in my phone or like some CRM with a label. So any of my friends listening, like don't think of it like that. But just like contextually, like having this framework is a way to, how do you take advantage of your network to be mutually beneficial? And for me, it's, it's helped tremendously over the last 15 years, even in college through today. I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I look at it and say, if you are going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be open to talking. Like you got to put yourself in some uncomfortable positions. So whether you're introverted or extroverted, like you are the CEO, you are the best salesperson on the team for a pretty extended period of time. So you got to be able to go out and use, use that network. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest things that, that I teach a lot is how to actually unlock the, the, the network. LinkedIn connections doesn't mean that you have a network. Actually understanding how to leverage it is really the next step. And so you're starting to scale. You've hired Katie. You, you, got, you got some really good traction. How did you know that, like, how, like, what kind of measurements are you looking at? I mean, obviously you're looking at unit economics, but it's not just to simply like look at a spreadsheet and you, I mean, that, th these, are, these are calculations that take time to really dial in and actually be able to trust. Yeah, we have, we have a ton of metrics that we track. So our product is not, we have a, an annual subscription, but our product is primarily transactional. You pay us an upfront fee, you get the estate plan, and then there's a small annual fee to continue to maintain it, but you don't have to, we're not forcing customers to continue to purchase, they can opt out. So with our original pricing when Katie joined, like we're obviously tracking initial average order value, average revenue per member, we're tracking, it's hard to track for us like lifetime value, but initial average order value and then average revenue per member over time. What we were specifically looking at, since we were very reliant on paid marketing, as well as our cohort payback period, if we're going to spend $10,000, how quickly or how long does it take us to recruit that $10,000? And how do we decrease that cohort payback period over time? So we have kind of like a waterfall spreadsheet that we were tracking that on and specifically looking at our contribution margin, right? Do we have positive contribution for what we're spending versus what we're getting on a period of time? So that for, for, still today, honestly, but like for the longest time, I was like, that was the mandate. Like, let's get to positive contribution margin. And we got there and we're like, all right, how do we incrementally improve it? And that's where the marketing budget expanded from like these always on channels, spending a little bit more in testing and learning and spending a little bit more in these long-term investments like TV, influencer, now real influencer marketing, sponsor. We have a skydiver with sponsored athletes. Like there's kind of like random things you start to test when you have a little more budget, including sponsorships, like event sponsorships sound so expensive in the early stage days. But if we spend 10 grand to sponsor a financial advisor conference and we get one pre-sale, pre-purchase from an advisor firm for $15,000 worth of estate plans, where we get one new partner, broker dealer at that, at that conference, the ROI could be one X to 10 X. So we have, we've learned a lot. I think that for us now, there's kind of like the broader strokes. How do we react to the markets when we have a, you know, eight figure revenue business and we're reacting in a down market? How do we continue to drive optimizations while we can still double the business? We have growth in the business while pursuing a path to profitability while surviving, have cash, have cash to keep us alive in case things continue to go south. There's something doesn't work in our business. We have to actually kill off a product or kill off a partnership. So those, those for us are decisions that we're looking at every day 
with the board, with the executive team, with the broader organization. We're like unusually transparent at Trust and Mill, which maybe scares <laughs> some teams or companies or entrepreneurs listening to this, but it's helped us get to this point with, with some peace. What, one of the things that's interesting in, in, in what you're saying is, is you are like almost obsessed with the numbers. And this is something that you you might hear advice to say, ah, you should know the numbers of your business or you should know the business health. But everything that you are saying throughout this entire conversation always comes back to some kind of a number and some kind of line item that says, is this working? Help me understand dot, 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 positive contribution margin. Mm -hmm. It all ties back to this story, which is kind of interesting. How, how, How did you... What what is the process for like setting this up? Is this is this daily? You look at the numbers. Is everybody looking at the numbers? Is this dashboards? Is this CRM? Or help me understand how to how you actually have set this all up. Yeah, in the early days, a lot of it's qualitative predictions. You're like, I think we'll be here. I think this could be our revenue. I think this could be our unit economics. But <laughs> I mean, we have an incredible team. We have a wonderful head of operations. We have a data team. We have full time finance in house. Like. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Like, I think the shift for us, like crossing 10 million revenue mark or eight figure revenue mark, I'll get my numbers right here. It for us, like, you're now in the next category. Like, now it's like that 10 to 25 million revenue business. How do we ensure that the data we have is accurate? How do we ensure that we're reporting it accurately for our team's benefit more than anyone, but making sure that we're accurately reporting it for all of our major investors, our board? and are accurately forecasting for future investors. Like we're not done fundraising. We'll continue to fundraise, you know, growth capital in the future. Numbers don't lie. So let's make sure that our data is super clean and accurate. We're always looking at the data every day, but reporting it more on a monthly cadence for the team's benefit. Cause weekly is, we do that with a smaller group in-house, but like forecasting or looking at the numbers every week is too granular for most at the organization. Even monthly is too granular for some. So quarterly is most appropriate for the board and for major investor reporting. And we have an operating plan that we're always kind of benchmarking and reviewing every quarter with the board. If we need to reforecast, we do it. If you listen to podcasts from me from like two, three years ago, I'd avoid the numbers because I was like, we don't know. So I don't want to talk about it. Now I feel a lot more comfortable okay. spending a lot more time in it. Still not the true expert. We've team members that are far more eloquent with their financial knowledge and data, but I have to, like, I want to grow as a CEO. I want to take this company as CEO through an IPO one day. And this is, this is my expectation of myself along with many others. Now that's, that's, it's interesting in the way that you think about the numbers. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, you learning and you, you evolving based on your own skills from a CEO perspective. I mean, you, you, this is not your first company, so you know that you know some of the things that you're getting into and you know your strengths and you know your weaknesses. And as you start to have more and more success, to be able to kind of put your ego on the shelf for a minute and say, hey, I, I'm not a huge numbers guy. I, I, I wasn't like that earlier on. And then kind of self-reflecting and saying, all right, I need to, let's dig into this and, and to be able to say, let's hire these people to be able to help you here. When you, when you look back, so the one to 10 million and then now 10 to, 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 you know, 20, 25 million along that journey, what is there, are there specifics that you can point to that are like this changed in the business because of the revenue clip that we're at? Pricing change was a big deal for us because of the upside on our contribution margins. Like price increase was like 40% increase in contribution was like 50%. 
And it was the first time we looked at the numbers like, oh, these are actually good numbers. This, this is, we feel good about this, the health of our planning business based on this forecasted out 12 months and beyond. And that was you know, a year and a half ago almost that we decided on that. So here we are in 2023 and like obviously reacting to the markets from this last year, the most and single most important narrative is path to profitability. Like you hear that from a lot of companies, for us it is the priority. Because what it does is it gives us optionality. Like one is survive, like just we're we're surviving with venture capital, which dilutes the business, but it's given us a ton of capital to invest in product, the customer experience, in partnerships, and grow an awesome team with the hopes that like upon getting profitable, we just control our destiny a little bit more. So we look at future capital fundraising, it's not just to like say we raise more money at X higher valuation. It's like, well, what can we do with that capital? Can we go acquire a bunch more companies, which is our goal with growth capital? Can we get to 100 billion revenue business okay, so with growth round yeah, or beyond 200 million revenue business? Because that's like we're working backwards now. We're five, like five years in, five and a half years almost. Like over the next five years, can we get to the public markets? Not that like that's the achievement or the goal, but it, what it unlocks for us is the ability to influence millions, if not tens of millions of customers, not in the hundreds of thousands that we operate in today. No, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I would. It only makes sense to be able to, to to grow, add new products. Growth by acquisition makes a lot of sense. And as you start to get bigger, the confidence in your numbers, as because you've been so disciplined in the way that you've grown, to kind of attribute as much as you can to specific kind of plays that you run, that makes a lot of sense to kind of see the way that you're running it. When you look back from like the one to ten million kind of growth path. Is there anything that you look back and go, really screwed that one up? Like really screwed that one um, up, love, love, love to take that back. <laughs> yeah, or, or in particular, Tyler, who's our, our senior FP&A manager, we, we brought him on in Q4. I wish we hired for his role, him specifically, like two years ago. You know, blessed to have a co-founder who's went to school for finance, has deep chops on finance, but like, again, you get to a certain point in the business, before, like Katie, my example with Katie, we kind of started that conversation, not just with her, with other candidates too, as we're kind of brushing up on that million run rate. And like when you are getting to that 10 million plus run rate and you don't have full-time finance person in-house, like very much like, please, please, please hire someone before you get to that. If you can forecast accurately with a finance hire and you can present that, even if you don't take outside capital, you just present that to your team consistently, just gives you really strong indicators that you're going to hit certain goals versus stretching your goals, not hitting those stretch goals. And I just wish that we made a hire like Tyler two years ago, not two quarters ago, because he's just done wonders. Like our books are cleaner, confidence with the, the board and investors is higher, confidence with ourselves and our bit. We're like, oh shit, we have a real business here. This is amazing. Like it's not that our numbers were off, but you just have more clarity and granularity with your forecast that we didn't have before. And that's that's a, a higher, in a future company, I'd make way sooner. No, it's interesting. I mean, it's sometimes it's funny because you're like, I, I if I had to do it again, I'd make that higher earlier. It works the uh -huh. same way as far as somebody who's not working out either, right? Like you're like, I, oh, I, sh I should have gotten rid of that person, you know, faster. And, and so it's interesting how it really works both ways. I've been having a lot of conversations with startups, mainly CEOs and founders is just around like, getting hiring right can just absolutely make or break the business. Like if you make the wrong hire, it can crush the business. If you make a great hire, it can exponentially shoot you off into the right direction as well. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's where, you know, we have the, the leadership team that we've built over the last several years is exceptional. I mean, like, I'm, I'm younger, I'm 33, and like not, you know, despite this being my third startup, I'm still pretty young. So as much as I seek out great talent, I'm also seeking out CEOs that are further along than myself that I can reach out to. I, I know that the listeners won't be able to see this, but like the High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, which I'm holding up here, books like Masters of Scale, which is Reed Hoffman's book. His podcast is great, too. Like you listen, you know, you listen to founders that are ahead of you or have done it before, consuming podcasts, reading books, following entrepreneurs you admire on Twitter or on LinkedIn, like trying to leverage like my classroom every day when I'm not working and a dad, I have a three-year-old at home. My classroom is going on Twitter and yeah, some of it's nonsense and some memes, but like there's some really valuable content I get and there's entrepreneurs that I reach out to constantly, like Noah Kerner from Acorns, who's an investor in our company. Like the fact that I can reach out to him or Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, who's on our cap table. I can reach out to Steve, I'm gonna see him this week, is incredible. And to ask them questions that I don't know the answers to, and sometimes I don't even know the right question to ask. Is this the right question to be asking? So that vulnerability has only increased over time and hopefully keeps me humble. Yeah, I, I definitely see it a lot, the, the vulnerability piece. It's, a, it's an interesting insight because Oftentimes it's, I raised money and now I have to prove it's, it's this constant, like I'm proving that you made the right decision to invest in me when investors really understand that there's going to be issues, there's going to be mistakes and really the vulnerability and the transparency is what they're looking for. Granted, granted that you get the right investors, but most of the time these investors, yeah. they want help. A lot of them have actually been there before. So they know the things that you're going through. So it only makes sense to ask them is this the right question and be okay with saying no cody that's the wrong question you should be doing this instead or you should think about it this way and being able to be okay with kind of making that switch yeah we had we had our, our board meeting this last week one of the things it was ironic because we recap we recap the year we recap q4 we had a great quarter best quarter ever best year ever you know the board i i always have like what keeps me up at night slide what the board wants to see and we'll do this moving forward is like the shit that didn't go well slides that like here's what we didn't get to do this this year here's what we missed on this quarter whether it's product or partnerships and like actually leading with that as much as it hurts you like want to like sweep it under the rug as an entrepreneur you're like ah, i'm self-conscious about that your board, you're mutually aligned. Like your board wants you to succeed and we're very transparent with them. But I, I, I like that they prompted that because it was kind of unexpected. I'm like, do you want like a like dog shit slides to open up the board meeting? Like things that didn't go well? And without calling it that, they're like, yeah, like we do want those slides. So I'm gonna, I'll get creative with the titling, but it's nice to have investors that care enough that they actually are okay to hear the things that you don't really want to share, but they might have perspective no, on with other companies to work with. No, I, I think it's good advice. I mean, we, we get, we'll have to have you on again to talk all about <laughs> picking the right board and the right investors and that type of thing. <laughs> but I, I think yeah. that the overall reflection of like when you when you're preparing for the board meeting, I think that's one of the actual biggest positives for a CEO and a leadership team is to be able to look back and go like, what is it that's going really well? And what is it that's not going so well or that we missed? And I think that exercise alone is what makes the whole thing worthwhile. Obviously, you get the feedback and the help and that type of thing, but, but the reflection is really, really powerful. Yeah, we're, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, we're like the, the racehorse with the blinders on the side. Like, we know that we have that angle in sight, and we're running as fast as we can to get there, but sometimes we forget to take them off 
sit up, look around, and the board can point those things out. They're very obvious things sometimes. Like they're, you know, we're mostly smart people starting companies. Sometimes like, hey, I know you're looking left, but have you ever looked right? And you're like, oh shit, there's a whole bunch of opportunity there that we haven't chased yet. All right, we got a couple of couple last questions. So, what would you say is one of the top bets that you made that worked to scale revenue? Partnerships, and it's like a it's like a win lose because like partnerships take so much longer than you want them to. But uh, you know, we started investing in these relationships like three, four years ago with some of the largest companies in the country in banking, insurance, folks on the broker dealer and RA side. It's all starting to pay off. And like revenue for some of them has really taken off. For others, revenue still has time to catch up. But I think if you know that partnerships will be helpful or you believe that partnerships will be helpful for scaling your business, highly, highly recommend invest as early as possible in the relationships. Because what we've done, maybe knowingly and unknowingly, and I'm very biased as I say this to your listeners, is you're kind of creating the narrative. Like you're creating your own luck, you're creating the narrative of the vision of the world that you want to see for your business. And at some point, like someone at these organizations fully buys into it. And that person who's fully bought in doesn't matter sometimes their rank and file because they start to have the water cooler conversations with others that rises up. And something like estate planning that was not important, not a priority several years ago is now not maybe not the most important, but very important and a priority. And they want to give you your brand, your company, the opportunity to prove it out. So that's something I, I'm proud of, but is you know many many years and hundreds of thousands of hours of calls. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. I'm I'm on the right path. You got to have patience. You got to have patience. But it it, yeah. it is if done right, it, it will pay off. So let's flip that flip that around. If you had to do one thing differently, outside of this hire, a little bit earlier, mm. what would you do differently in order to think that would scale revenue faster? If I could do one thing over again, it would be to take a bet on yourself to acquire companies earlier. You got to remember there's there's a ton of opportunities in how you approach deal structure. And with easy probate acquisition that we made last year, we did a mix of cash and equity. And for some people, some people are heavily motivated by cash. Others are heavily motivated by equity, especially there's a ton of upside in the growth of your combined companies. And sometimes it's better to join forces than to try and do it all on your own. And that's how, as we look at the future of Trust Mill, so that's a retro, I wish we maybe would have taken a bold bet on ourselves and maybe doing an acquisition earlier than we did last year, four years into the business. Because now as we look future, forward thinking, forward looking, I'm like, I want to go acquire a whole bunch more companies. I got seven on a target list right now, not guaranteed that any of them would sell to us, but maybe one or two. And if we raise growth capital of cash as an incentive and a nice valuation with path, not guaranteed, but a path to public market or an exit, hopefully in the future, it's a pretty good upside. And yeah, if we could make a couple founders, millionaires along the way, that'd be super cool. And like have a more robust product offering, more complete product roadmap, higher revenue and better unit economics to share with our investors and their, their investors that they're bringing over if they have them on the cap table. I don't know. It's also kind of cool. It's a cool challenge to take on to acquire companies. So that's why we're excited to maybe do some more. No, I like it. It's I, I've always been a fan of the kind of the growth by acquisition. I think it's a, I think it's a great way to be able to provide a tremendous amount of horsepower to your company quickly because you can bring in a mm -hmm. team, you can bring in a new product, 
obviously the integrations got to get dialed in but i'm excited to see what you guys see, see see what ultimately happens with that that list that you have cody this has been fantastic i got i got one more question and then we'll and then we can wrap up and we'll go from there for everybody who's listening you mentioned a couple of different books. Is there a book or a resource that you would recommend for founders and for CEOs who are, are in that process of scaling, transitioning out of founder-led sales? What, what would you recommend? Yeah, I'm actually gonna pull up one of the books I held up. It's the High Growth Handbook. It's like an encyclopedia of knowledge by Elad Gill. And it's so referenceable for all stages of your business from inception all the way through IPO and even scaling as a public company. It's just filled with knowledge, real world experiences and companies over the last like 10, 15 years. So it feels fairly fresh and relevant. And when you pair that up with a great network of founders, always reaching out to founders that are one to two stages ahead of you or a couple years ahead of you. And especially ones that are willing to give you their time a couple times per year. Mine is usually text. Like I have a very specific question. I'll send it over text. Generally, we'll get a response back same day. Try not to take more than five or 10 minutes of their time because I don't have a lot of time either. And I, I, I like that kind of dynamic. And most importantly, pay it forward. Like paying it forward. It's why I wanted to do this podcast is like hopefully someone, even if it's one entrepreneur that got value out of today, that was worth the entire time we spent together. And that's, I think, what kind of keeps this ecosystem driving forward is having great folks to lean into, but also being able to regest, regest, digest that knowledge and, and share it back out so it's more digestible than how you interpreted it. Well said. That's how, it's how it works. We receive help. Let's be able to pass that help on to more, to more and more entrepreneurs and founders. Cody, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Is there anything that we would like to tell the audience how to get a hold of you? Anything you want to promote? How, how does yeah. the audience get more of Cody? Yeah, shameless plug. I'm always wearing some Trust and Mall swag. Always in, even at Disneyland, I was wearing my Trust and Mall <laughs> swag, maybe to my wife's there disappointment. You if you need an estate plan, if you want to have the conversation with your family, usually younger people, go talk to your parents if they have it. Whether they choose an attorney or Trust and Mall, doesn't matter to me. But having the conversation is so important, especially if you're listening and you have kids yourself. The second, pretty accessible, Cody Barbo on all social networks. Um, probably most most reliable, most repliable on Twitter more than any. So shoot me a follow on Twitter. Let me know that you listen to the podcast. And other than that, I'm just grateful for the time to talk shop about startups and entrepreneurship. It's usually about estate planning, which is fun. But I like talking about the journey of building the business because this is my third startup and hopefully many more to come in the future. Love it. Cody, thank you so much. Love the story. I appreciate you being on. We are going to have to have round two when, when you get to, you know, a couple steps ahead and all the thank acquisitions you. we're going to, we're going to have to dig into all, all that's happening there. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Alex. Awesome. Thanks, Cody. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.